well, I was in kindergarten, we occasionally did uh, show and tell days. So how many people know, is this like a familiar thing to everyone, show and tell days? Like everyone, okay, everyone knows what this is, good. Um, well, it's a, you get to bring in, you know, something to your class and show them it and then tell them about it. So sometimes, you know, somebody brings in their pet bunny rabbit or something, some, somebody else brings in a rock they found, like, ooh, look at a little hole in it or something. Somebody brings in something they made, you know. And so we can bring in all these stuff and it's just something you really like um, and you wanted to show to somebody else. Um, but even though we did this in kindergarten, I don't think I've really grown out of it because when Katie and I were dating um, in college, she came to my parents' house, um, spent the weekend there, and because I grew up in the country, I spent a lot of time building forts, and so like one of the first things we did is I went and showed her all my forts, and I told her about them, so she chomped through the woods with me, and um, I guess it wasn't too bad because uh, she was a good sport, and thankfully she still married me, but, I don't, <laughs> but even today, I still don't think I've grown out of it because I really enjoy showing people things I've built or something cool I bought or something cool I found, and I really enjoy people like taking me through tours of their house. I really like giving tours of our house. It's just a really fun thing and to do, and I'd imagine that many of you are the same way, but maybe with different things. People used to pull out their walls to show pictures of their kids, but now we probably pull out our phones. So you pull out your phone to show and tell people about your kids, or you maybe uh, have some a new car that you got, or some landscaping that you got done, or maybe you have the latest iPhone. You like you say like, oh, I just want to show this to you because I'm excited about it, um, and I like it, and I, and I want to tell somebody about it. And whatever it is, when we have something that we enjoy, or we're excited about, we want to show people it, and we want to tell them about it. And today we're finishing our series called Living Good News Together. This is the very last message. We've done seven messages. And as a church, we've been learning how to live in light of the good news about Jesus. And so take a moment. We've done this for six weeks. And now the seventh week, we will complete going to the back of the songbook. So flip to the very last page of our songbook. This has been our roadmap for what we've been doing during this series. And so in the first message, we covered our mission statement. As a community, we're surrendering all of life to Jesus and inviting others to do the same. That was the very first thing we covered. But then we asked, well, well, how do we surrender all of life to Jesus? How do we invite others to do the same? Well, that's answered by what's in the middle, our community practices. We do that by practicing believing the gospel, living as family, loving as servants, going as messengers, and relying on the Spirit. And we may ask, well, why do we do all this? Lastly, it's our vision. It's so that, as the family of God, we can show and tell the good news of Jesus to every man, woman, and child. And that very last thing, our vision statement, that's what we're focusing on today. Showing and telling the good news of Jesus to every man, woman, and child. And as we think about that, you know, think about um, the things that we get excited about showing to people and telling them about. They're, that's the same reaction we're supposed to have with the good news about Jesus. It's supposed to be, I really want to show this to people and I really want to tell people about that. And we're going to be looking um, at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21 to get um, a better idea of how do we show and tell the good news of Jesus to people. And the big question this passage answers is, how can we show and tell the good news of Jesus? That's the big question that 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21 answers. How can we show and tell the good news of Jesus? In this passage, the Apostle Paul is explaining how he goes about showing and telling the good news of Jesus. And from that, we can learn, well, how are we supposed to do that? How can we show and tell the good news of Jesus? And Paul's going to give us three answers um, to our big question. So first, let's look at um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll start in verse 11, verses 11 through 15. That's going to be our the opening um, a- answer that we're going to be looking at. And in this 
section of the passage, Paul is talking about his motives. Why does he do what he does? And he gives us the first motivation in verse 11. He says, the fear of the Lord, he says, that's my first motivation. And, and we need to really understand that term, fear of the Lord, because if you can understand what that little phrase means, it's going to help you in a lot of your Bible reading because it comes up all the time. And it doesn't mean that we're cowering before God or we want to hide from Him. Of course, that does happen to some people in Scripture because they see God in all His holiness and they kind of are afraid and cower. But this is a different thing it's talking about. Um, what it means is that you have a, a deep reverence and awe and respect for Him. It means you're, you're impressed by Him. And as a result, you put Him first in your life. You, you recognize Him as the most important person in your life. So he's at the top of your priority list. That that's what it means to have the fear of the Lord. And we may ask, well, where does this deep reverence for the Lord come from? And by the way, he, the word Lord is used in this passage. The word Christ is used in this passage. And we have our big question is Jesus in it. And all those are referring to the same person. Um, well, this verse um, starts with a therefore, which connects what Paul is about to say with what he has just said previously. And so what has he just got done saying? He's just got done saying that he makes it his aim in life to please the Lord Jesus Christ. And why? He says because he knows that everyone is going to stand before Jesus Christ and have their life evaluated. What did you do? Did you do good in your life? Did you do evil in your life? And so he says, um, he, he just said that. So then verse 11 picks up and he writes, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So because Paul knows he's going to stand before Jesus and have his life evaluated, he's going to say, like, how did you live your life? And he's going to talk about that with Paul. Jesus is a really important person in his life because he knows that day is coming. And so he makes it his aim to please Jesus, his Lord. And how does he do that? Well, he says, we persuade others. Now, Paul and this team around him who are helping him to show and tell the good news of Jesus um, are want, all trying to persuade people to believe in Jesus, to turn from their sin and turn toward Jesus. And Jesus' importance in Paul's life explains the second part of verse 12, because he says this, starting in verse 12, he says, well, we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about, our, about, about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. And there's this group of people that has come to the church, and they're saying, you know, why are you listening to this Paul guy? He isn't very impressive. They're like, we're impressive. You should listen to us. And Paul is saying in return, well, you know, to kind of paraphrase those verses we just read, he's saying, well, God knows us. He knows our heart. He knows our motivations. And I hope you do too. He's saying, Corinthians, you know me. I hope you remember what our motivations were, what our heart was towards you. He's saying, you saw how we conducted ourselves when we were with you. You saw we had integrity. You said that we were... Um, being true to you. We weren't doing anything to deceive you. And he's saying, I'm not saying all this to make more of us or to get you to be impressed with us, but I want you to remember our conduct so you can have confidence about the message that you got from us. We, we delivered this news about Jesus, and I want you to remember how we acted so you can have confidence about him. And then he's saying, well, don't be fooled by these people who are focusing on outward appearance, who, are, who aren't concerned about the heart matters, because that's what matters. Don't be impressed by what people are showing on the outside. That shouldn't be your criteria. You should look at the heart. And other parts of this letter tell us that Paul's opponents are putting a lot of stock in having 
um, these kind of dramatic like spiritual experiences, like having visions and like shaking or doing you know whatever it is, and they're doing it in front of people, and they're kind of saying like, you know, is Paul having any of those? Look at us. Look at these impressive experiences we're having. They're saying you should think more of us and less of Paul, but. Paul says um, in verse 13, he's saying, well, if I have these spiritual experiences, these dramatic spiritual experiences, that's between me and God. I don't do that in front of people to impress them. But he's saying what we do do in front of people, we have a sound mind. We use reason. We use um, logic. We, we're trying to persuade you so you can understand who Jesus is and so you can believe in him. We're not wanting you to be impressed with us. We want you to be impressed with Jesus. And so we use a sound mind to explain who he is. And so Paul's first motivation we've been covering is the fear of the Lord. And so he isn't worried about it being impressed with the people. He just wants them to know Jesus. And his second motive comes from Christ's love for him. He says in verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us. Paul and his team are telling people about Christ, about the Lord, about Jesus, because they've been deeply changed by Christ's love. It is gripped them and now it compels them to tell other people about this same Lord who loves them. And how does he know that Christ loves them? He continues in verse 14. He says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have con concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might, not, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He knows that Christ loves him because Jesus died for everyone, and that includes him. And because Jesus died for everyone, that means everyone can experience the same love of Christ that Paul has also experienced. But what does it mean? It's kind of a, you know, there's like a little, those two verses are kind of packed. It's like, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that because Jesus died for everyone, therefore all have died? I'm, looks like I'm alive, you know, and <laughs> Jesus died. I'm, well, how does that mean that all have died? And well, first it means, there's two things it means. First it means Jesus died so that we might be forgiven for our sins and freed from the penalty that we deserve for them. We've all disobeyed God. We've all committed cosmic treason against the king of the universe, and the penalty for that is death. And Jesus died in our place to offer us freedom from the penalty for our sins. We can die to that penalty because Jesus died in our place. And second, it means Jesus died so that we might be freed from the power of our sin. And so he died to free us from the penalty of it. He died to free us from the power of it. Because Jesus died for our sin, we can die to sin as well. And in verse 15, he says that Christ has died for everyone. Well, well, why is that? He says the purpose was so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And in this, these couple verses, we have the essence of sin and the essence of salvation. What is sin? You know, at the ground level, you know, at its deepest level, what is sin? And at the deepest level, what is salvation? Well, it's this. That the essence of sin is living for yourself. The essence of salvation is freedom from sin so you can now live for Jesus who loved you and died and gave his life for you. Returning to our big question, the big question this passage answered is, how can we show and tell the good news of Jesus? And the answer this section gives us is we need Christ-focused motives. We need Christ-focused motives. If we want to show and tell the good news of Jesus, we need Christ-focused motives. And Paul has two Christ-focused motives he gives, the fear of the Lord and the love of the Lord. The fear of the Lord and the love of the Lord, those are the two motives that Paul gives. He knows his life is going to be evaluated by Jesus, and so he focuses on pleasing Jesus. And he's also convinced that 
Jesus died for him, and so he's really focused on Jesus' love for him. These are his Christ-focused motives for showing and telling the good news of Jesus to other people. But I think, maybe it's just me, but I'd imagine that a lot of us have kind of a problem with this. We don't like the idea of Jesus evaluating our lives. We don't like the idea of standing before him and receiving what is due for how we've lived on earth and kind of create a worry and anxiety in us. We don't think that it goes very well with love and grace. What? Evaluating? He's going to talk to me about how I live my life? No. How does that fit with love and grace? But the beauty of this passage is that Christ's evaluation of our life and Christ's love for us are side by side. Paul says those are his two motivations. One doesn't take away from the other. Paul isn't the least bit worried about Jesus' love for him because Jesus' love for him is a motivation. He knows he has Christ's love. He isn't worried that Jesus is going to reject him at the end of his life. He knows that Jesus loves him and has paid the price for all his failures to, dis- to obey Jesus perfectly. And knowing Jesus will evaluate his life doesn't produce worry in Paul. It motivates him to please Jesus. Jesus is his king who's given him a job and now he wants to complete that job and hear, well done, good and faithful servant from his Lord at the end of his life. When Jesus brings us into his kingdom, it comes with both privileges and responsibilities. We don't earn the privileges. We don't work for them. He gives us to them, gives them to us free of charge. But then he gives us responsibilities as servants in his kingdom. And how well we execute those responsibilities doesn't determine whether we have the privileges. We already have them. He's brought us into his kingdom. He gave us to them those to us free of charge. We don't need to um, worry about whether um, we will stop enjoying the privileges of his love and his mercy and his compassion and his grace and, and salvation. But at the same time, we will stand before Jesus and he will evaluate how faithful we have been to carry out the responsibilities he gave us as a servant of his kingdom. My father-in-law uh, is a very gentle man, Katie's dad, uh, and he's a very gentle and gracious man, and he um, had four daughters, and so he had to learn, you know, okay, I'm going to teach them sports, I'm going to get down on the floor and uh, play house with them, um, and I'm going to do all this stuff with them, but I've never heard him raise his voice, and Katie has never heard him raise his voice. He's very patient, he's slow to anger, he's generous, he's humble, and he's kind. And at the same time, Katie cares very much about pleasing him. The worst words that she could ever hear from her dad are, I'm disappointed and a choice that she made or an action that she did. Well, why is it? It's not because he's going to be mad at her or stop loving her or reject her. No, it's because she knows how much he loves her and how much um, he has done for her and given her. And this makes him an extremely important person in her life. And so she loves her dad deeply and respects him deeply. And so she wants to be him to be pleased with her. And it's the same for us with our Lord. We don't make it our aim to please him because he's going to reject us or stop loving us or take away the privileges of his kingdom. We already have our Lord's love and now we want our Lord's pleasure. We want him to be pleased with us because we, because we love him and we deeply respect him as our king. He died for us so we could no longer live for ourselves but we can now live for him. And the good news of these verses is that Jesus loves you and it's possible for you to please him. It's not an impossible task. You know, sometimes you may feel like, oh, here's all this stuff to do and you could just never do it right. It says Paul's aiming to please him, so that means we can please Jesus. And it also means that our lives count. Jesus evaluates them because our lives count. They matter. King Jesus brings us into his kingdom 
And he gives us significant and important work to do to further his purposes, his kingdom purposes. He gives, you know, this is from the top, you know, getting a command, a mission from the top. And Jesus gives that to us, and it matters whether we carry it out. In these verses, 11 through 15, we learn that we need Christ-focused motives if we're to show and tell the good news of Jesus. Let's look at the second part of this passage in verses 16 through 19. In these verses, Paul is going to explain the message he tells people. Because he knows that Jesus' death makes it possible for people to be free of the penalty and the power of sin, he says in verse 16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. You regard someone according to the flesh means you're just looking at the surface, kind of like he's talked about before, before, looking at the outward appearance instead of at the heart. And when Paul first heard about Jesus, well, he thought he was a fraud. He thought he was a liar, um, and that his, the people who followed him were liars, that he really didn't die for his sins, and that he really wasn't raised from the dead. And on the surface, it's probably because Jesus isn't very impressive. The Bible tells us, well, there's really nothing that would attract people to him. Like, there's no outward appearance that would make you say, yeah, yeah that guy's a leader. Like, that guy's the king. And plus, he suffered in his very own country, um, the nation of Israel. He suffered at the hands of his leaders, and then he died as a criminal, naked and shamed, on a cross. And so what's impressive about this guy? She's like, you know, another guy who went through the criminal system, and another failed Messiah, another failed Christ who didn't work out. He's not very impressive on the outside. He claimed to be the Savior everyone was waiting for, him, but then he just suffered and died as a criminal. And even though Jesus' disciples are telling people that he died for forgiveness, the forgiveness of our sins, Paul wasn't buying it. But now something has changed. It's almost like, this is almost his own story he's sharing here, because he was going about trying to stamp down and stop the Christian movement. Um, but one day Jesus appeared to him, resurrected from the dead, and all of a sudden he's it's all true. Like they, they really were telling the truth. He really was raised from the dead. And that means he really did die um, for our sins. And so once he was convinced of that, um, he saw that Jesus' death changed everything. He, he no longer thinks Jesus is unimpressive. He, he's the most impressive of all. And his death has the power to undo the effects of sin, which is why in verse 17, he says this, Therefore, if anyone, was in, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And though sin causes us to live for ourselves, which brings death and pain and suffering in our lives, Jesus can undo all of that. You know, it's like the backspace or the undo button on the computer. It's like Jesus can undo that. He can reverse it. He can make all things new. He can repair anyone's life. He can undo the effects of sin and selfishness that we've done to ourselves and that we've done to other people in our world. He can undo the effects of pride. He can repair us and restore us and renew us. Paul continues in verse 18. He says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. The key to making us new is to reconnect us with God. God created us, and he can recreate us to be what we were meant to be. But restoration projects are costly. I have this, I don't know, I have this weird, maybe this is a true confessions moment. I really kind of like HGTV, especially uh, like Chip and Joanna Gaines. I don't know, when Katie and I were in the uh, hospital when we were uh, 
you know, I just, I don't know, I was just watching that show. And every time I go to the gym, it always seems like HGTV is on. I don't know why. At all hours of the day, it's always on. But I really like those shows where they're like fixing up a house and like getting them ready to sell. And it's like, woo, you know, there's this big transformation. Um, but those products are costly. If you buy a house that's a fixer upper, it's going to cost a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of hard work to make a fixer upper new. But imagine that you're the one who made it into a fixer-upper. You moved in, you trashed the place, you didn't care about anything, you were reckless, and so you're just banging around and you're you know, just not caring about anything, so you're making holes in the drywall, there's broken windows, broken faucets, and stains in the carpet, and there's garbage everywhere. And, but it, and the worst part is, you aren't even the owner. Someone else owns the house, and you're trashing this house um, that doesn't even belong to you. And this is the situation and condition we're all in um, before God. We're all fixer-uppers because we have lived for ourselves. We brought ruin and destruction into our lives. And because God created us, we don't own ourselves. He, we're responsible to Him. We're re accountable to Him. And so we were supposed to always be living for Him, and yet we've trashed our lives by living for ourselves, and we're all fixer-uppers. But God comes in and says, I'm not willing, or I'm willing to not count all those wrongs against you. I won't count all those trespasses against you, all the things that you've done to ruin this house, and I'm willing to make you beautiful once again. You and me, each one of us is a fixer-upper, but God says, I want to take you, I want to make you new. And God does this through Jesus Christ. Even though we've made a mess of our relationship with him, and we've wronged him by living for ourselves, God will pay the price to both restore our relationship with him and to repair us. And this is the message of reconciliation that Paul says that he's been given. That though we've all lived for ourselves, God will pay for the damage we've done out of his own pocket through Jesus. And the big question this passage answers is, how can we show and tell the good news of Jesus? And the answer this section gives us is we need a Christ-focused message. We need a Christ-focused message. That's how we show and tell the good news of Jesus. We need a Christ-focused message. Because who's made all this possible? Jesus Christ has. Therefore, our message must be focused on him. It can't be focused on anybody else if we're actually going to tell people good news. It's the good news of Jesus. It belongs to him. It comes from him. He's the one who makes it possible. We want people to be impressed with him, not what, with what we can do or what we can say or how we can help them. We want people to be impressed with Jesus. We want people to know that he's done everything necessary to reconcile with us with God. And without him, we have no hope. A relationship with God is not possible without Jesus. Salvation is only possible through Jesus. Forgiveness is only possible through Jesus. Heaven instead of hell is only possible through Jesus. Righteousness instead of condemnation is only possible through Jesus. But the problem is that both believers and not yet believers can be impressed with something other than Jesus. Because we can first we could be impressed with our sin instead of with Jesus. We can think, well, our, my sin is just too much to forgive. I, I don't, I'm sure all of you have heard people that you've maybe talked about, oh, maybe why don't you come to church with me? Or what do you think about God? And they say, no, if I ever stepped in a church uh, building, I would just be struck dead because you know, my sin is too great. And it's saying they're more impressed with their sin than uh, being impressed with Jesus, who can take away all their sin. We need, we need to be impressed with the Savior, who can take away anyone's sin, no matter how much or how great it is. And second, we can be impressed with our good works. 
Instead of clinging to Jesus as the one who reconciles with God, we can rely on our own goodness, our own ability to make ourselves right with God. And, and many people hope, if you talk to lots of people, they say, like, yeah, you know, like I you know, maybe lived kind of bad at the beginning of my life and now I've been trying to make up for it and live better. And they hope that the good things outweigh the bad things. But no good deed can make up for the disobedience and the unfaithfulness that we've committed against God. Just like getting your spouse a dozen roses wouldn't erase the fact that you cheated on them. And God says, we've all been like unfaithful spouses. We're supposed to love him alone. And we've loved other things more than him. We've loved ourselves. We love the things he's created. We love um, other things and worship those things. And when Christians sin, sometimes we think, you know, now I need some time to kind of like work my way back to God. You know, maybe it'll take a week of like, okay, I just need a, a streak of not sinning. And then I'm back in good relationship with God. But we need to be impressed with Jesus who paid for all the damage that we did to our relationship with God. And Jesus paid all of that. So far, Paul has given us Christ-focused motives and Christ-focused message that we need in order to tell the good news of Jesus. So let's look at our final section in verses 20 and 21. Because Paul has been given the ministry of reconciliation and because he has been entrusted with the message of reconciliation, he says... In verse 20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Here, Paul shows us how to do the ministry of reconciliation. And the word Paul uses to describe his ministry is ambassador. And an ambassador is not sent with their own authority or with their own message or with their own plans. They're sent to represent someone else. They're sent uh, to do the will of someone else. And in this case, Paul says, I'm a representative of Christ, sent with a Christ-focused message about what God has done through Christ to reconcile rebellious, disobedient, selfish sinners to himself. Reconciliation is possible through Christ only, but the appeal for reconciliation comes through Christ's ambassadors. Christ made it possible, and now he says, I'm sending you as ambassadors um, to do the ministry of reconciliation, to bring people back to God. And Paul sees that the Corinthians need to come back to God. They've wandered and strayed. And so he says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He's saying, I'm calling you back. Jesus has done everything for you to be reconciled with God. So come back to him. Come and accept the gift he's offering. And then in verse 21, he repeats the Christ-focused message that makes reconciliation possible. He says, for our sake, in verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you want to memorize a great one-verse gospel message, this would be a good one to memorize because it covers a lot. It tells us about Jesus' sinful, sinless life. He knew no sin. Jesus never sinned. He was perfect. He always did God's will. He never disobeyed. He never rebelled. He never ignored God. He never told God no, and he never said yes to sin. Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life. And yet, for our sake, God laid it on him the penalty for our sin, sin that he never committed, was laid on Jesus. Why? So that in Christ we may exchange our guilt for his righteousness. That's what makes reconciliation possible because Jesus took upon himself the damage and the penalty for our disobedience against God. And the big question this passage answers is, how can we show and tell the good news of Jesus? And the answer this section gives us is, we need to do Christ-focused ministry. We need to do Christ-focused ministry. How can we show and tell the good news of Jesus? We need to do Christ-focused ministry. Because who do we represent? 
not representing ourselves. We represent Christ. The ministry is all focused on him. We come on behalf of the king um, with an appeal on his behalf. Be reconciled to God. We're asking people, be reconciled. He's done everything to do it. And some people are going to accept this offer of forgiveness, and some people will reject it. But they're not rejecting us because we're ambassadors of somebody else. We're representing somebody else. They're representing the one well, they're rejecting the one who sent us. They're rejecting Jesus. And we're always representing a kingdom. We're always representing a king. The question is whether that kingdom is Jesus' or our own kingdom of self. You're always representing a kingdom. And being an ambassador includes both showing and telling. So which kingdom are people seeing and hearing from you? The key to showing and telling the good news of Jesus is first to be deeply affected by that good news Yourself. When the good news of Jesus takes root in you, it will flow out through you. When the good news of Jesus takes root in you, it will flow out through you. Because when you believe that Jesus is a king who is generous and forgiving and loving and patient and kind and gentle and faithful and compassionate, then you will show the same good news to others. Your life shows what your king is like. Your life shows people what sort of kingdom you represent. And way before you have the opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus, they're going to be seeing what Jesus is like through your life as you're showing them um, how you treat your spouse, how you parent your kids, how you interact with your neighbors, how you do your job, how you treat cashiers and waitresses. Everything you do is showing people what sort of king you serve. Is he generous or stingy? Is he kind or harsh? Is he humble or proud? Is he welcoming or distant? When the good news of Jesus has taken root in you, it will flow out through your actions. And on the other side, when the good news of Jesus has taken root in you, it will flow out through your words. The good news is that even though we were far from God, he came close to us. Even though our sins were many, he made us white as snow. Even though our debt was mountainous, he paid it all. Even though we stood condemned, he served our sentence. Even though we were the worst fixer-upper on the market, he bought us and paid for us and fixed us up. When we truly believe that good news, that God has stepped into the mess of our lives to make us new, we will want to tell others. And it all starts with the gospel that tells us of Christ's love for us, how he gave his life to free us from our sin. The Christ-focused message is what gives us Christ-focused motives to do Christ-focused ministry. As we close, just a couple comments on how we do this as a church. And thinking back to that show and tell uh, in kindergarten, we we easily tell people and naturally tell people things we're excited about um, and that we love and that we're, we're pumped about or that we're impressed by. And the same is true with Jesus. When you become impressed with his love, his mercy, his grace, his kindness, his compassion, his care for you, you will want the world to know the treasure you have found. It will come easily. And that's why the first step is get the gospel in you and the gospel, then the gospel is going to start coming out of you. As a church, we do this as a family. You know, we look at our um, songbook, if I can find it. Ooh, this is easier. Our logo has a crown in the middle, which because we're all surrendered to Jesus, and we're, um, but we're doing it as a community. The circle, the dots around the crown are showing we're doing this together. We're surrendering all of life to, J to Jesus together, and we're inviting other people um, to surrender their lives to Jesus together. And we show people what Jesus is like. We've covered our community practices. But how do they see what his kingdom is like? Well, it's when we're living as family. We're loving as servants. And how do they hear what he's like? Oh, we're, when we go as messengers. And those community practices uh, are, help, are what enable us to live this out. And we do those um, by believing the gospel, relying on the Spirit. That's the only way that we will um, show people and tell people about the kingdom. 
We practice these at our worship gatherings, in our gospel communities, in our gospel fluency groups. So it's all designed, you know, this time and all those other times, we're all designed to get the gospel down deep inside of us so that once uh, we're transformed by it um, and it's transforming inside of us, it'll start flowing out through us, through our actions and through our words and how we interact with each other um, as a community. Let's close um, in prayer. Father, thank you. Um, that you assure us that Christ does love us because we can look at the proof. Um, he died for us. He gave himself, even though he didn't have to, um, for our sin, to rescue us, um, to renew us, to redeem us, um, to restore us to what you meant us to be. And so, Father, as we leave here, would you let that message, if there's anything else we um, remember, would you just let us remember that message of Christ's love for us, how he died for us, how he became sin, who knew no sin, so that through him and in him, we might become the righteousness, your righteousness. So thank you, Father. Would you help us to continue praising you as we sing um, this song. In your son's name we pray. Amen.